started this morning, we need to make sure that we are ready to study God's Word. That's done very simply through the procedure of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. At the point of salvation, or at the rather at the point of His crucifixion on the cross, Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every single one of our sins. That is the basis upon which God applies uh, forgiveness to us. Forgiveness is a result of the redemption that is accomplished on the cross. At the moment of salvation, we are forgiven, cleansed from all of our uh, pre-salvation sins. They've been paid for at the cross, but in terms of our relationship with the Lord, it has not been, that has not been applied in terms of cleansing, purification. That takes place at salvation. But what about post-salvation sins? What about the sins we commit after we're saved? Those are cleansed, we're purified, those are dealt with at the moment we confess our sins. They're dealt with, God forgets them, they're behind us, and we can move forward. At the moment we're forgiven, we're also filled again with God the Holy Spirit, who is the one who is our teacher and instructor and helps us to understand the Word of God. So that's why it's important every time we study the Word to make sure we're in fellowship, filled with the Holy Spirit, to enable us to concentrate and understand the deep things that are in the Scriptures. So let's prepare with silent prayer, and then we'll begin. Father, we thank you for the way you have taught and instructed us through your revelation, through the 66 books of the Bible, which contain everything we need to know, not just about spiritual life, not just about our relationship with you, but through that revelation, you give us the framework for truly understanding everything that operates within your creation. Now, fathers, we continue to look at the important subject of witnessing and communicating the gospel to an unbeliever. Pray that you would help us to grasp these things, help us to improve our our ability to accurately communicate the gospel to those who do not know it, and that we might be good, faithful witnesses. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to begin in 1 Peter 3.15. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. We are still in our study of the Gospel of John. We are in John 3 where we are eavesdropping on this remarkable conversation that Jesus is having with this rabbinical leader in member of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem named Nicodemus. I've studied this super passage superficially many times, and this time I'm getting into it in a little more depth because it just has so many fascinating elements to it that are rarely taught, if, if uh, brought out at all, by, by anyone who deals with that, that particular passage. So we need to look at it in a little more detail, primarily because it fits into one of the themes we've been seeing throughout this Gospel of John. John, remember, wrote the Gospel with one primary purpose in mind, and that is to communicate the Gospel to people who are not saved. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in His name. And if you remember as we've gone through our look at the Gospel, 
John has seven witnesses in the gospel. It's like he's building a case, a legal case. I'm impressed once again with how often in the Bible you see legal, a legal framework or background to what is being communicated. So much of the gospel is communicated in legal terms. Justification, righteousness, you look at cleansing. All of these things have primarily legal connotations, connotations of guilt, not emotional guilt or psychological guilt, but true guilt, disobedience to, to law code. So we see this, this background. The case that John is building to is that there is substantive evidence in space-time history provided by Jesus of Nazareth through various signs that he performed in his life, that were witnessed by hundreds, if not thousands of people. Substantive evidence that if you are honest with this evidence, you can come to one and only one conclusion. And that is that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. He is the promised, prophesied Messiah of the Old Testament. And he is the one who, and the only one, who is uh, qualified to go to the cross and die as our substitute for our sins, to pay the penalty for our sins that we might have eternal life. So he's building a case. He's marshalling various witnesses, just like a good defense attorney or a good prosecutor will bring various witnesses put, uh, to testify in the trial in order to build their case. So John is building uh, this particular case of these witnesses. Now, in that context, we have talked about the doctrine of witnessing and the doctrine of of what it means to give a testimony and to testify to what Scripture says. So we've covered witnessing well in terms of the how-tos. John wrote, um, this is, I write these things that, that you might believe. We've understood that the gospel is faith alone in Christ alone, why you need to be saved. The, the basic content of the gospel we've covered. But when we come to John 3, what we see is not just the content of the gospel in terms of regeneration, which is clear, but we see an actual one-on-one -on -one witnessing scenario. And we get to learn something about how to conduct ourselves in the middle of witnessing to an unbeliever. And that's what we see with Jesus. And so we're analyzing the moves that Jesus is making in his conversation with Nicodemus. And before we get back to that... I want to take this brief aside, looking at 1 Peter 3.15, which is a very, very important passage and relates not only to our subject this morning, but to what we have gone through with this uh, recent conference on creation with Charlie Clough. And once again, let me say, if you haven't, did not get a chance to attend those, those uh, classes the last two or three days, that you need to get the tapes on the Creation Conference because this is fundamental. And a lot of what I covered last Sunday morning and this Sunday morning is uh, overlaps and is tangential to what, what Charlie covered, especially in the first three sessions. Okay, 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Okay, what are you supposed to do? What is this verse telling you, the believer? This is not an option. We have a verb here that is an aorist active imperative. It's from the Greek word hagiazo, which is a very interesting word in itself. 
Hagiazo. Looks like this in the Greek. H-A-G-I-A-Z-O. And its noun form is Hagias, which is where we get the word holy. Means The root meaning of this word is to be set apart. So it's when it, sometimes it's translated sanctify or make holy, all these ideas. But the key thought here is that something is set apart. In the Old Testament, when you consecrated the vessels in the tabernacle, what you were doing is, that's that same word, except in the Hebrew it's kadosh. Kadash is the verb. You would, you would set it apart. It's, it, when it's consecrated, it's set apart to the service of God. This is not going to be a bowl that is going to be used for everyday common use anymore. It is specific to the worship of God, and by sanctifying it, you set it apart. You, you put it in a special place. So when we have this imperative here, and it's an aorist imperative summing up all of the action, and it gives it a, a little stronger force... When Peter says that we are to do this, what he is saying is, as a believer, you need to give Jesus Christ the number one place in your thinking. It says, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. And the Greek word there is cardia, and we have studied that, and we know that cardia does not refer to the physiological organ that pumps blood through the body. But cardia often refers to the innermost realm of a person's thinking. Sometimes I use the analogy of left lobe or right lobe or innermost thinking because the Bible talks about the thinking of the soul under two categories. The nous, which is the mind, and then the cardia, which is uh, the most inner part of the thinking, the core, the core thinking in a, in a person's life. So when we read, set Christ Apart as Lord, set him apart as Lord in your in the innermost thinking of your soul. What's that mean? To paraphrase it, he's commanding us to make give Jesus number one priority in our life. Now, how do we do this in context? He's saying that one way in which you make Jesus the number one priority in your life, if you really, this is what Charlie was talking about. I think it was yesterday morning or last night. If you really understand the dynamics of what took place on the cross, if you understand the essential message of Christianity, it is earth-shattering. It is foundation-shaking. It is, it is not just something that you as a person go out here and, I, oh, I'm just going to go grab Jesus and add Him to what I've already got. No, everything you already have, you're going to completely tear apart and go over here and start from ground zero and rebuild everything. It's revolutionary. That's what Paul says when he commands us in Romans 12, 2, to renovate our thinking. Not just to, to Charlie, use the analogy of, a, of an interior decorator coming in and just changing the wallpaper, painting the walls again, doing something like that. That's, that's what we think of as renovation. And the concept there is, no, there's a bulldozer out there, and the whole house is being torn down, including the foundation. We're going to start all over again. And see, most people are so infiltrated with human viewpoint thinking, not only by the time they're saved, but even someone in my case who, who trusted the Lord at an early age of six and was brought up in a church and taught doctrine for years, 
still you imbibe an incredible amount of human viewpoint thinking from the culture around you, from school teachers, from peers, from books you read, because that's what's attractive to your sin nature. And so we're in the process of, as believers of just tearing down everything and reevaluating every single piece of, of thought, every assumption in our thinking has got to be brought out, brought into the light of God's Word, reevaluated and, and renovated. And that's what this is talking about, making Christ the number one priority. And one way in which this is done is by always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you. Now, the, here we come into the Word. We know that, first of all, the command is that we have to set Christ apart in our hearts, and it's done by making a defense. So this is really not an option for us. This is not an option, but this is an absolute mandate for every believer to do this as part of the spiritual life. So often people ask the question, well, what's God's will for my life? Well, this is one category of God's will for your life, is to always be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks. Now, this word defense is a very interesting word. Uh, A-P-O-L-O-G-I-A. Apologia. It's where we get our English word apology. But apology is not the sense that this has. We're not asking someone's forgiveness here. This was a very technical word in, in ancient Greece... And it has to do with making a legal defense in a case. So think about a a courtroom analogy, what an attorney does. We are required to make a a legal defense to everyone, not just the folks we like, not just answer the questions that we're comfortable with, but we are to make a, a defense to everyone, to anyone who asks us any question, to give an account for the hope. Now, hope is another interesting word. We use the word hope to refer to sort of a, uh, an optimism, that, that we, we, a, a futuristic optimism that I, I hope this happens somewhat in the future, that this good thing comes about, but I'm not really sure. So it's an uncertain optimism. But that's not what the Bible means by hope. The Greek word elpis, E-L-P-I-S, means a confident expectation. This isn't an uncertain optimism. This is a confident expectation. And what is your confident expectation as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? That you have an eternal destiny in heaven because of Christ's substitutionary atonement on the cross for you. So the command here is that if Christ is to make Christ that number one priority in your life, to make doctrine number one in your life, you need to prepare yourself to give an answer to make a defense, to give a legal defense to anyone who asks you to give an account for this confidence that you have that you're going to end up in heaven. But you know, there's another point here. Yet, with gentleness and reverence. See, what happens so often is when we get into a discussion with someone over the gospel and they start asking questions, well, why do you believe that? How can you... And then they... they, well, how can you believe there's a God? Or how can you believe that God, God is good when all these terrible things happen? And immediately we let them put us on the defensive and we make it personal and we think that the issue here is that I've got to win an argument and you're not there to win an argument. 
that, that the issue here is that I've got to be able to answer all their questions because the problem's intellectual. And from what I said last week, when I went through Romans 1.19 and what Charlie showed, the issues are not fundamentally intellectual. The issues are spiritual. The, issues, the issue is that if we're right, they're condemned to eternity in the lake of fire, and they're doing everything in their power to avoid that. It's a hot button for them. It's a very emotional issue, and the unbeliever is going to react. Now, that doesn't mean they're necessarily negative to the gospel, but it does mean that at this point there, there's some emotional response going on, and it could be part of the convicting work of God the Holy Spirit. So we need to always be ready to make a legal defense. Now, what's involved in a legal defense? We've had a lot of situations, a lot of very famous courtroom scenarios happen recently with the O.J. Simpson trial. And we watch uh, uh, the brilliance of his legal team headed up by Johnny Cochran. We look at what's going on with um, uh, Ken Starr and the special investigation of the president. And, the, and whether you agree with it or not, the uh, absolute brilliant strategy of the president's defense team and all of his lawyers in handling that. There was the trial up here in Boston last year that had to do with the death of Matthew Epen and the trial for the, of the nanny for murder. All of these things have made us aware that one thing is critical to a legal defense, and that is strategy. Strategy. Strategy means you are thinking about what you're doing. You're not just going to throw off the four spiritual laws or whatever it is you're using in witnessing to somebody. But you have thought, you have given thought, like, like these lawyers, when they get, get ready to go into the courtroom, they play what if. They, they get together and they brainstorm and they say, well, what if this comes up? What if that comes up? What if they ask this question? What if somebody asks that question? How, am I, how are we going to respond? So they develop a strategy, and that's what's involved. If we're going to set forth a good, any good answers when anybody asks us these questions, and it happens all the time. You're at work, you're, you're talking with a neighbor, all of a sudden some issue comes up, and, and you get the opportunity to say something that reflects on your witness as a believer. You get to head that person in the direction of the gospel, and somebody, not always, but somebody's going to start asking you questions. Now, sometimes we're afraid. We don't want to say anything because we're afraid they're going to answer the questions because we're not prepared. But we have to have that, that strategy to have a good legal defense. What's involved in it? First of all, we have to have a goal. Secondly, we have to have content. And third, we have to know our, our opponent. These three things, I think, are critical to, to developing a strategy for making a legal defense. The goal means we know where we're going, what we're trying to do. We're not trying to win an argument. We're not trying to show how smart we are. We're not trying to convince them we're right and they're wrong. The issues are not personal. The issues are not intellectual. The goal is to clearly and accurately present the gospel and the goal is to answer whatever questions they might ask as clearly as you can without compromising your own position in the process. Unfortunately, the way most Christians go about it, they compromise their position at the very outset so they can never build a very very good case and they end up looking like an intellectual ninny and a mental midget. 
I'll never forget the time I was in college, and I had one of these little magnetic things on the dashboard of the car that said, Jesus is the answer. Somebody got in the car and said, well, what's the question? I said, thought about that a minute. How do you get to heaven? Well, how do you know there's a heaven? You know, the conversation just deteriorated from that point on. And I just felt terrible after I got rid of that stupid magnetic thing because I realized it made me look like a, like a ninny, just another Christian who just sort of makes this leap of faith into intellectual suicide that I just trust Jesus, isn't that wonderful, and not really have any uh, cognition going on behind it. And see, the person who's really committing intellectual suicide is the unbeliever, not the believer. And I think we've seen that in this, in this recent conference that we've had. So we need to have realize that the goal is to clearly present our case without compromising it at, at the outset by somehow compromising with human viewpoint systems of reasoning, which we'll get into a little later on. We need to know the goal, to clearly present the gospel. Secondly, we need to have the content of the gospel, and we've gone over that, I think, a lot, that it involves four things. First of all, you have to deal and explain that there is a God, the God of the Bible, the creator of heaven and earth, not just any generic God. Secondly, somewhere in the gospel presentation, you have to talk about the fall of man, that man has a problem, and that problem is sin that separates him from his creator. The third element in a good gospel presentation is that God has solved the problem, and that's at the cross. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for sin. And then the fourth element is a volitional one, that they have to make a decision to accept or reject Jesus Christ. Those are the four elements in any gospel presentation. And you can, once you get a handle on that and a couple of verses memorized to focus on each one, you can pretty much explain the gospel to anyone. But it has to include these, these four elements. So that's the content. And we've gone over that time and time again. So we don't need to, to spend time on that this morning. But this last one brings in the whole element of strategy, knowing our opponent and knowing how the opponent thinks. How does the unbeliever think? How does he approach reality? How does he approach his explanation of all reality? Anyone who sits down at in any game, any athletic contest, contest, whatever, they have done their homework. Football teams send out scouts to figure out how that other team plays. They know their opponent, know what they're going to do so that they can handle the situation. So we're going to try to address some of that by looking at Jesus and how he deals with Nicodemus. So turn back with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. We've covered some of this already, so you should have a fair background that Jesus begins this discussion with Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to him. It's nighttime. They're sitting out on the rooftop under the starry sky. There's a breeze blowing. Nicodemus has heard all about the miracles that Jesus has done. Maybe he has witnessed some. His conclusion is that obviously this fits the pattern prophesied in the Old Testament. And this is clear that he's moving very close to a position of faith by his initial question. But he's still uncertain of certain things. And he still has the problem of the self-righteous legalism of the Pharisees, that somehow, am I been good enough? And Jesus says, the only one way into heaven is through regeneration. Verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says, well, what are the mechanics? How can I do this? How do you go, do you go back into your mother a second time? I, I don't understand. 
Jesus rephrases it, makes it a little more clear. In verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, we saw that terminology comes from the New Covenant passages in Ezekiel 36, 25 and 26, meaning that it's not it's born again and it's born from above. That comes water is cleansing, the cleansing of sin, and the application of redemption in the Spirit is that this is an act done by God the Holy Spirit, not by man. Man cannot regenerate himself. It's a complete renovation of the individual and the creation and imputation of a human spirit. That's what it means to be born again. And without that, Jesus says, you can't enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. And then Jesus says, has a command in verse 7. And then in verse 8, as we've discussed the last two Sundays, he shifts his content, what he's talking about. He starts talking about the wind, and he draws an analogy between the wind and the person who's regenerate. And I was scratching my head over this this week because I kept thinking, here he's talking about gospel content, and then in the wind analogy, he challenges, he challenges Nicodemus on his authority base for what he knows. And he says, just like the wind, you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. Man can't predict it. It's beyond our empirical and rational systems to understand it. In the same way, so is regeneration. And we use the diagram. Charlie used the more advanced, detailed one. But I use the diagram, a graph here. This is your y-axis. This is your x-axis. This vertical line on the graph represents space. Horizontal line represents time. As far as uh, space is concerned, the smallest amount of space that we can see is some sub-microscopic uh, particle. The largest is something out in the universe with the aid of telescopes and microscopes. We can extend our observations a little bit. In terms of time, the smallest amount of time we can measure is about a blink of an eye without, without instruments. With instruments, high-speed photography, we can extend that a little bit. On the upper end, in terms of time, is the span of our lifetime expanded a little bit by uh, historical witnesses of other people who've lived. But that forms a box. Man is inside the box. Man is completely limited empirically. He can't get outside the box. He can't observe anything any, any uh, smaller than this, any larger than this, any shorter or longer than that. So anything out here is beyond his ability to to, um, to find, discover empirically, and so it's pure conjecture on his part, unless someone comes from outside the box to address the situation. And this is the point that Jesus is making in verse 8, and we've looked at that, but why does Jesus make this jump? What's going on strategically in his witness to Nicodemus? He gave the gospel down through verse 6, and then in verse 8, he's talking about Nicodemus on the basis of your authority, which is based on finite human systems of perception. You don't get there. You can't understand this. I'm talking about spiritual data that is out here that comes from heaven, and I'm giving you, giving you this information. What happens? And I looked at this little word back in verse 7. In verse 7, Jesus gives, gives him a command based on the Greek word thaumazo. T-H-A-U-M-A-Z-O. The noun form is the word we get for wonders or miracles. 
and and it's an aorist. It's an aorist passive or an aorist active subjunctive, which plus the negative may, which indicates a strong prohibition. Grammatically, the imp, the, the thrust of this is that the prohibitive aorist is normally used in specific situations to prohibit the action as a whole. It usually has an ingressive flavor to it. Do not start doing this. So Jesus is saying, don't start marveling. He cuts him off right away. And the meaning of the word thalmazo is the second thing that's interesting. This word means to be astonished or amazed at something, but it has another tone to it. Doesn't just mean, wow, isn't that something? And we just look at it and it's a good astonishment. That's not what this is. The tone to this is a tone of criticism and rejection. And what's happening as soon as Jesus says to Nicodemus, you have to be born again, this doesn't come from Nicodemus' frame of reference. It's, it's outside the authority of the rabbis and tradition and his own finite systems of human perception, and so he is mentally on the verge of rejecting it because it's outside his system. And Jesus says, stop right there, and then he shifts, and he quits talking about what he has to do to be saved, and he pulls the epistemological rug out from under Nicodemus. He says, you don't have a basis for knowing this. You're short-circuited in your knowledge system because it's limited. That's what epistemology means. Epistemology is how do we know what we know? How do we know truth? And if we base our epistemology on empiricism, on empirical data, it's limited. We're inside the box. Now, the, other, the only other system of empiricism open to man is rationalism. If you are a human being and you want to know truth, you're going to try to get there one of two ways. First way is empiricism. That's the scientific method on the basis of examining data, the sense data. Rationalism starts in the mind with principles of reasoning. Well, there's basically two kinds of logic. There's deductive logic and there's inductive logic. Inductive logic starts with observations and moves to conclusions. But the best you can get in inductive logic is probability. Inductive logic can never yield conclusions of absolute certainty. And so you can have a thousand observations that seem to indicate a certain conclusion, and there's always going to be one more variable, one more piece of information that you might discover that will totally reverse, not just modify, but absolutely reverse the conclusions you made on the basis of those first hundred observations, first thousand observations. So what you see is that in inductive logic, you can never get to certainty. You're you're building your castle on somewhat on shifting sands. So the, the unbeliever who comes on the basis of inductive logic is going to have problems. And deductive reasoning is built from, you have a major premise, then a minor premise, and then you develop a conclusion. Now, you have a certain conclusion, but that conclusion is only as strong as your major and minor premise. And ultimately, when you push any logical system of thinking, of thought, back far enough, 
It's going to start with what philosophers call first principles. Those first principles are intuitively grasped. You can't prove them. It's like first principles in geometry. It's based on intuition. Well, you, you can't prove it, so once again, it's, it's ultimately, it's based on an assumption. Well, that doesn't get you certainty either. So the only way you can get certainty, if man is in this box in terms of knowledge, and his knowledge is going to be limited, it's finite, because neither empiricism nor rationalism can get him everything. They can get him a lot, but they can only go so far. They have their limits. How does he know about what's out here? How does he know about God? How does he know about heaven? How does he know about the purpose and destiny of man? Unless someone out here invades the box and gives him the answers. So, when we look at the strategy that's going on here, when you have two people get together, you have a believer here and an unbeliever here, get together and they're going to discuss the gospel. The first principle I want you to understand is that in human viewpoint, the unbeliever wants to appeal to some independent authority. He wants to say, okay, here, here's the point we're trying to discuss. The validity of the Bible. Okay, let's find some independent authority out here. We'll say Z. Well, let's find some independent authority out here so that we can evaluate this and see if it's true. Well, what independent authority are you going to appeal to? Are you going to appeal to reason and logic? Well, we've just seen that has that's very good and very helpful, but it's limited. It can't do the job. Are we going to appeal to empiricism? Well, we can't do that because we're locked in a in a box. We can't get outside the box. So the only solution then is for somebody to speak from outside the box. And that third epistemological option, that third system of a, is revelation. The authority of God's Word. That God speaks authoritatively to man. And this is where Jesus goes in His next statement. After He establishes the fact that man is limited and can't come to a knowledge of these things. He says in verse 12, or excuse me, in verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven. No man has gone up into heaven. No man's gone outside the box. But he who descended from heaven, I came from outside the box, even the Son of Man. So this is the starting point that Jesus has for giving the gospel, is the Word of God. His own authority. Now, Jesus can use His own authority because Jesus is the Lord of the universe and the Creator of everything. Remember, God the Father planned it, but Jesus is the one who did the actual creating, Colossians 1, 16, and 17. Nicodemus, is the unbeliever, is starting off from his own frame of reference, his own limited frame of reference, as a man. Jesus' starting point, he's not going to go up here and appeal to this ultimate court of appeal out here of either reason or empiricism, but he starts from himself. He is the ultimate court of appeal. 
God is the one who speaks with authority about what everything is. It is God that can say, verily, verily. And this refers to what is called the self-attesting authority of Scripture. Now, whenever you're talking with someone and you're trying to give them the gospel and make it clear and they start asking questions. Now, they can ask questions because they're just being arrogant and hostile and they want to try to trip you up. But you know there are many people who are positive. How's positive volition work? Here you are, you're born a baby, and you go through a process where you slowly develop a self-consciousness. You realize you're different from everybody else. Then you develop a world consciousness. You realize there's mommy and daddy and your brothers and sisters, and, and you can distinguish between people and chairs and toys. And then eventually, at some point, as you learn vocabulary and developmental categories, you develop an understanding and ability to understand that God exists. And that's called the age of accountability and God consciousness. And at that point, you can exercise positive or negative volition. I want to know more about God or I don't want to know about God. But this is real simple, but it gets messy in real life, doesn't it? Because we know there are people who can be positive at God consciousness, and maybe some of you, because you know that right now, as a 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 year old, You're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, so obviously, God consciousness, you are positive. But maybe, when you were positive at God consciousness when you were four years old, you never got the gospel. And when you're 16 years old, you're into drugs and alcohol, criminality. Then you decide that life's pretty miserable, so you want to react to all of that, and you get involved in some cults. You start bouncing around. First you're this cult, then you go into that cult, then this group and that group. And you start cycling around. And you go through all the various religions. Now, at some point in here, let's say you go through five different cult groups. One through five. And in all those groups, you're taught all the drills as to how to react to, to, to Christians. And you're up here in religious cult number three. Some believer comes to you and gives you the gospel. Well, you're going to be as hostile as you can be. You're going to really react to that. And that believer is going to say, that guy's negative. But see, ultimately he's positive, and we know the final story is when he gets down here to number six, he hits biblical Christianity, and he's saved. So at point number three, he starts asking questions. Well, wait a minute. Okay, I've been told this by my cult leader. What do you say the Bible says? And see, you're going to get the chance to plant the seed. Or maybe somebody else planted the seed back here and you're going to water it a little bit and then somebody else will water it. And then somebody else will water it. And finally the Holy Spirit will bring it to fruition down here. That's the process of apologetics. It's giving an answer for the hope that's in you. It's being able to explain these things. It doesn't mean it's your job to convince them of the truth. That's the role of God the Holy Spirit. He's the sovereign. That takes all the pressure off, doesn't it? It's not my job to convince this person that this is right. It's my job to present it as clearly and as accurately as I can and to handle whatever questions he has to the best of my ability. So what happens in this dialogue is there's going to be this appeal to some authority and Jesus says, I'm the one who has the authority. We're not going to appeal out here to facts. 
We're not going to appeal out here to independent logic or reason. We're going to appeal to me because I am the Creator and I have the right to determine what everything is. Revelation, the way Jesus presents it now, revelation of the Scripture is the final court of appeal as to what is true and what is not true. Okay, so the first thing that we saw is that human viewpoint wants to appeal to an independent authority. Let's look at history. Let's look at logic. Okay, and so you appeal to history or you appeal to, uh, to evidences and you finally convince this guy that the tomb is empty and he says, well, you know, we live in a universe ruled by chance. So, you know, that was just a chance happening. Well, you haven't won anything at all. See, he tricked you. At the very outset, he said, he said, let's use independent authority out here of history. And you say, great, great. If I can prove historically that Jesus lived, died, and rose from the dead, I've won the case. But see, the facts of the empty tomb, the facts are not necessarily neutral. Facts are always interpreted. And he's going to, he has a mindset over here, as we saw in Romans 1, 18 and 19, where he is actively suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. So you, what you've done is you've subordinated God's Word to some independent truth. And that brings us to point two. There is no independent authority or judge over God. An appeal to reason, experience, or logic, or history, or science or whatever other created category you can think of, as an independent authority, places God under that authority, makes God subservient, makes that authority an autonomous, gives it an autonomous existence, an independent existence, puts God under that rather than making reason and logic eternally resident in the omniscience of God so that reason and logic are what they are because that is who God is. Let me go over that again. This is, this is heavy stuff. I know this is heavy stuff. I've, I've listened to Charlie Clough teach stuff on this for 20 years. I have read numerous books trying to grasp and understand this. I'm giving you a lot of background. The bottom line on all of this is that when we get into a witnessing situation, it's not on our backs, folks. You don't have to know all the data. You don't have to appeal to all the historical facts, all the scientific facts, everything else. You have to know the gospel. You have to be able to make a defense for your case. You have to know what the goal is. The goal is to make it clear and rely on the Holy Spirit to do the work. There's no independent authority or judge over God. An appeal to reason, experience, or logic as an independent authority makes God put, puts, makes God under those rather than makes, making reason and logic each, something that's eternally resident in the omniscience of God and, and making reason and logic what they are because that is who God is. Reason and logic have no independent authority outside of God. They are defined by the internal essence of God. Now, let's review what happens in the Garden of Eden. Turn back to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2.17, God says, okay, here's a tree, don't eat from it. Cause effect. Here's the cause. You eat from the fruit. Here's the effect. 
you will die spiritually. Look at Genesis 3.4. The serpent says to the woman, you shall surely not die. So he says, the serpent says, eat, not die. Want to take a chance? Chance, you know, one part of this subtext is, chance rules the universe, not God. He can't control that cause and effect. Chance rules. Another subtext that's going on here is that Satan has, in a very subtle way, remember the text says that he comes as a serpent, the craftiest beast in the garden. Now you've got two options. A and B. For those of you who missed it yesterday, when Charlie Charlie did something similar to this, he said the options are A and B. What happens is Satan very subtly reduces them to the same level. So that what that does is it forces the woman, Eve, to be the judge. It puts her in a position where she makes a, a very subtle move. Now, she's got to decide which is right and which is wrong. As soon as she thinks that she has the ability to decide which is right and which is wrong, she's already cast the die in the fall direction. Because she's put herself in the position of judging the veracity of God's Word. Now, this is what happens when you sit down with an unbeliever and they say, prove to me that the Bible is the Word of God. You're sitting here saying, okay, what is the authority that I'm going to appeal to to prove God's Word is true? You've just said something as authoritatively, as as an authority over God. You're doing the same thing. You're making some aspect of the creation, logic, reason, science, whatever, as the authority, as the final arbiter of truth. Now, the final court of appeal in defining what is truth is either reason, it's logic, some human system of perception, or it's God. Those are the only options. One or the other. So in the garden, Satan shows us that it's very simple to get caught up in this. So that brings us to the third point, that things are what they are because God says so. Things are what they are because God says so. That's an oak tree out there because God says it's an oak tree, not because it has some independent existence as an oak tree. Two plus two is four, not because there's some, ra- there's some random principle in the universe that makes two plus two usually equal four, but because God, in the very essence of his being, being pure logic and pure reason, two plus two is four. It's eternally four on a base ten system. Things are what they are because God says so. Turn, let's turn and see this in Colossians 2, verse 3. Colossians chapter 2, verse 3. We're, going to, we're going all over the Bible this morning. Colossians 2, verse 3. This is a statement about Jesus Christ. He says, in whom, that's referring to Jesus Christ at the end of verse 2. He says, in whom, in Jesus, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Not some, all. In Him, 
All knowledge comes from Him. All knowledge has as its ultimate source the Creator God of the universe. Now, you're not going to get some unbeliever to admit that at all. In fact, they're going to say, well, well, the response is, if knowledge, all knowledge comes from God, then how can I know anything? He's operating on borrowed capital. God recognizes that because on the basis of empiricism and reason, He can come to a limited understanding of truth. He can know certain scientific formulae. He can know 2 plus 2 equals 4. But what we're discovering by looking at the Scripture this way, He only has a limited understanding of 2 plus 2 equals 4, and to understand it as it really is, you have to understand it in light of of what God says about 2 plus 2 equals 4, what God says about creation, or you really don't understand it fully or correctly. You only understand it partially. In Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That includes all facts of history, all scientific law, all mathematical principles. Everything always resides ultimately and derives from the person of Jesus Christ. Now, Colossians 2.4, Paul says, I say this. In other words, this has got to be your starting point. Your starting point has to be the self-authenticating authority of God's Word. That's where it has to start. He is the one who has all knowledge and all wisdom. Why does he say this? Verse 4, I say this so that no one may delude you with persuasive argument. If you don't start here, then as soon as somebody comes along with some persuasive argument starting with rationalism or empiricism, you're going to lose it because philosophically, understand this in debate, any of you who've studied debate, in any debate, if you grant your opponent their assumptions, you're going to lose the debate. That's where you nail your opponent is on their assumptions. If they've built everything else, built a logically consistent argument on their assumptions, and if you grant their assumptions, you've lost the debate. So if you grant their assumptions that ultimately... Rationalism or empiricism has ultimate validity in determining truth, then you're going to be deceived or deluded eventually in some area of knowledge. So Paul warns us. Verse 5, he says, For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. See, it's faith. Faith in doctrine, it's that perception of doctrine and application that's what provides stability in life. Verse 6, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus, that is, by faith alone in Christ alone, so walk in Him. That's the same message we've been seeing in Galatians. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude. Then verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive, Very interesting military term there. Don't be taken captive through philosophy, that is philosophical reasoning, based on rationalism or empiricism. Don't let anyone take you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Very interesting word here for elementary principles is the Greek word stoicheia. S-T-O-I-C-H-E-I-A. 
has an interesting history in Greek thought. It goes back to pre-Socratic philosophers, Anaxagoras, Anaximenes, and Anaximander. I always remembered them in philosophy as the three Anax. Anaximander, Anaximenes, and Anaxagoras. Anaxagoras, just, just as a little interesting aside because of our recent creation uh, conference, Anaxagoras taught that ultimately everything was, was chaos. Ultimate chaos, which somehow produced an ordered world. Sound familiar? From pure chaos and everything being random, you have absolute order of the world today. So see, it didn't come along with Darwin. It didn't even originate with the pre-Socratics. Anaximene said that ultimately, ultimate reality was air. And air was divine. And it caused life. You see the polytheistic and pantheistic elements there. Air is divine and it just, by chance, produces life. See, it's it's evolution. Um, Stoicheia referred to the basic elements. Okay, these were also called atomists. They said that the basic elements of reality were, were earth, air, fire, and water. And everything was a result of combination of these things. Well, we're a little more sophisticated today. We get down, we have a, our periodic chart has I don't know how many elements now. But we take all these, these basic elements and we look at the, the atomic structure and everything derives from random uh, merging of these various atomic structures and everything ultimately has a material, material base. So we haven't advanced any where you still have the same theory in terms of the world non-Christian thought, it just has a much more sophisticated scientific argument behind it today. So, things are, we say, the Bible clearly states that things are what they are, not because they have autonomous or independent existence, but because God says they are. That's why, whenever you say anything about anything, remember this phrase? When you say anything about anything, you say something about everything. When you say any kind of comment, you make a statement, 2 plus 2 equals 4, you are bringing to that, 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 if you say that's an absolute or treat that as an absolute, you're saying that there are absolutes in the universe. Well, if then you say that, that ultimate reality is chance, now you've got, on the one hand, you're saying everything is, is absolute, there are absolutes, and the other thing, everything's pure chance. And that's the problem with secular thought, with human viewpoint thought, is it's, Ultimately, it's swinging from rationalism to irrationalism, from contingency to, to absolutes, back and forth, and, there's, and it's totally inherently inconsistent. That's why, ultimately, all rationalism ends up in mysticism. That's why we're in the fix we are today as a culture. As we went over to rationalism in the 19th century, rationalism can't provide answers. And historically, the response, culture after culture after culture, the response to rationalism when it is bankrupt is skepticism. And that's what we saw in the 60s. And the response to skepticism, we saw it earlier than that, but we saw it really flower in the 60s. And the result, also came out of the 60s, is the result of skepticism is always mysticism. We just make this subjective leap. doesn't matter. If, I can't. Facts aren't going to work. I end up in despair on the basis of facts because I'm apart from the Word of God. So I'm going to end up in despair. I can't live with despair, so I have to just hope there's meaning in life. 
So I'm just going to deaden my pain and have a good time and get into drugs and TM and all kinds of religious feel-goodism and sing a lot of hymns and jump up and down so that I feel like I have meaning in my life because if I look at facts on the basis of rationalism, which is the church has gone this way, I look at facts on the basis of rationalism, I just end up with despair because most Christians have done this. Rather than sticking with the divine authority of God's Word, they have been deluded by philosophy and rationalism and empiricism, and they're building truth on this and not on the Word of God. They're not starting here and staying here. They're going to these outside systems. So that brings us to point four. The starting point, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, his final court of appeal is, Verily, verily, I say to you. He doesn't say, Now let's look at this rationally, Nicodemus. He doesn't say, let's look at the experience, see what history has taught us. Now, that's all has its place. But it's not the starting point. He says, I say to you. Point four, the starting point is authority, orientation to God. That God has the authority as the creator of the universe to define reality because He made reality. It's saying yes, sir, to God and going forward. That's what Proverbs means when it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We start with the Scriptures, and then we move forward. Point number five. Someone says, but, but isn't there a place for empiricism? Isn't there a place, can't we just demonstrate, isn't there a place? Well, there is a place, but it's not the ultimate authority. Because ultimately, empiricism never works. This is point five. And there's a classic example of this in Luke 16. Turn with me to Luke 16. If you understand what Jesus is saying here, this will blow you away. Luke 16. Luke 16, let's look down at... Um, oh, verse 14. No, verse 19. Verse 19. Now, there's a certain rich man. He habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. And a certain poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores. Okay, you know the story. There's Lazarus the beggar out by the rich man's gate. They both die. Lazarus is a believer. He goes to paradise. The, the rich man is not a believer and he goes to Tartarus. And then the, you have the picture. It came, verse 22, Now it came about that the poor man died and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and he was buried. And in Hades, he, that is the rich man, lifted up his eyes being in torment and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of, my, of his finger in the water. This is why we can say that there's an interim body, because there's a dipping your finger, put it on my tongue. There's some interim body between death and, and eternal life. Tip of his finger in water, cool off my tongue, for I'm in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus' bad things. But now he's being comforted here. You're in agony. Besides all this... Between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed. And he goes on, and then we get to the main point. And verse 27, he said, I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's... Let him go back to life. Let him go back up there and give his testimony. He's now got empirical data. He's got empirical data to confirm the fact that when you die, you either go to heaven or hell. Have him go back because I have five brothers. Let him warn them lest they also come to this place of torment. 
So he's making empiricism the final court of appeal. But Abraham said, listen to this. They have the Scriptures. That's all they need. If they're going to reject Moses and the prophet, they will reject someone who comes back from the dead. Wow. What that is saying is that the Bible carries self-authenticating authority. And the unbeliever has a preset mindset, if he's negative to God, that he, no matter how much truth you give him, it's the old saying, don't confuse me with facts, my mind's made up. It's the mindset, it's not the facts. That's why you can marshal fact after fact after fact after fact. Now that may be helpful, but it's not your final court of appeal, because empiricism isn't going to convince him. It's the Word of God that has the power. That's why God says, My word will not go forth from me, uh, return to me void. It will go forth and it will accomplish that which I purpose. For the word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two edged sword. It's the presupposition of autonomy and atheism that controls the unbeliever's interpretation of the data. Last night, yesterday afternoon when I was home, my background's history plus is science. I was reading Stephen Ambrose's book, Citizen Soldiers, and he's talking about um, the Battle of the Bulge and what was happening just prior, the two or three days prior to that, as the Allied troops for several months after D-Day had pushed the Germans back to the border of Germany. Once they got behind, got into Germany, they were behind interior lines, they have landlines, instead of uh, radio, so they couldn't be listened into by intelligence, and the intelligence dried up. And there was this massive buildup outside the, Ar- uh, the Ardennes forest by German troops, and they hit a surprise attack, which became known as the Battle of the Bulge. Those of you who were around then remember what took place in that great off- Ardennes offensive uh, Christmas of uh, 44. And Ambrose makes this point that in the two or three days prior to this, Some intelligence was getting out. Eisenhower and Bradley were hearing that there were troop movements. This was happening, that was happening, whatever. And and Ambrose makes this very perceptive statement. He says, intelligence makes no decisions. The mindset of the people receiving the information is more important than the intelligence itself. It's the same thing I'm saying. The facts aren't independent. Facts aren't neutral. It's the mindset of the person who's hearing the facts that assigns meaning to the facts. Okay? The presuppositions of the unbeliever control the data. Now, some people would say, if I'm saying that the ultimate accord of appeal is the Word of God, isn't that circular reasoning? I'm starting here and I'm ending here. But, now listen to this. That if you're, if you're sitting here saying, okay, if you start with the Word of God and you say the Bible says that it is the absolute authority, isn't that kind of, you're just arguing in a circle. No. You know why? That's only circular reasoning if you're basing your reasoning on empiricism. If you're inside that box, you're going to say it's circular reasoning. That's why Jesus says, I've come from outside the box. You see, the Word of God is only circular reasoning if you're operating on empiricism as your ultimate court of appeal. 
But if you're operating, if you've really understood the principle that the Word of God is your final authority, then Jesus is coming from outside of the box. It's linear. He's out here to tell you what you don't know and can't know through empiricism or rationalism. He's going to give you truth. It's based on His self-authenticating authority because He is the Lord of the universe. He's the Creator. He is the one who made things to be the way they are. That's why He says, No one has ascended into heaven, but He who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. The ultimate court of appeal is the Word of God. This is point number six. The ultimate court of appeal is the Word of God. John 17.17 says, Jesus is praying to the Father for the church, for you and for me. And He says, Sanctify them, that is, set them apart by means of truth. Thy Word is truth. It's the Word of God, people. Deuteronomy 4.19, I don't have time to go there, read through it, but if you get a chance, look at it. What happens is Moses is reflecting on how Abraham was called out from the nations. And he's warning the Jews as they're getting ready to go into the land. And he, he commands them to pay attention to all, to obey all the commandments that have been given to him. That's the Word of God, starting point. Obey the commandments. They're given for a purpose. And then he says, And beware, lest you lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the heaven. What's he saying? He's saying, beware of the fact that when you see these things, the sun, the moon, the stars, that you don't interpret them the way the world religions and the, and the pagans do. The Egyptians, the Pharaoh, the uh, Babylonians, the Amorites, they would all look at the empirical data out there, the sun, moon, and stars, and say, well, there's something bigger and greater than me, and they would see this object that warmed them, everything else. That must be God. And, he's, and, and Moses is saying, look, if, if it weren't for the fact that you have direct revelation from God to the contrary, you would do the same thing. The Bible tells you how to interpret ge- uh, astronomy. Right there, that's his foundation. Whatever you can learn empirically is nothing if you don't put it in the right framework. So you can know some truth about it, but if you have it in the wrong framework, then you've got it out of kilter. Something can be 99% good, like a glass of water, but it's that one drop of cyanide distorts the whole thing and makes it deadly. Psalm 36 a couple more verses I want to hit quickly. Psalm 36, 9. Very important verse. The psalmist says, For with thee, God, is the fountain of life. Here's the sentence. In thy light, we see light. Listen to that. That's an astounding claim. It's only in the light of your word that we see light at all. We don't see light without your word. We can't properly interpret anything in life, not just spiritual things, We can't properly interpret or understand anything and see it for what it is. Nothing in life is properly illuminated apart from your light. Nothing. Then Psalm 119, 110, which is a passage that many of us have memorized, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Okay, we've all said that. 
How many times do we think of that? Oh, that's the Scripture. It tells me how to be saved, how to relate to God, how to live a spiritual life. What's your path? What's your path? Your path includes your family life. It includes your marriage. It includes your work. It includes your intellectual life. It includes law, politics, economics, art, literature, history. Every realm of intellectual endeavor that the human mind can go is your path. What is it, the Bible claims, illuminates our path and speaks directly to every category of human knowledge to one degree or another? It's the Bible. Thy word is a light unto my path. These are phenomenal claims. Now let's close by going back where we started earlier in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. We see how Jesus, in his discussion with Nicodemus, appeals ultimately to his own authority. That's where we have to. I don't want to go to Colossians 2. Excuse me. We don't have time to go through all of this. We've covered it in the conference. You can get those tapes. We covered it last week. Acts 17, Acts 14, and Romans 1 are parallel passages. Paul is the one speaking to Gentiles in Acts 14. He's speaking to Gentiles at Athens on, on Areopagus in Acts 17. And he's addressing the Romans, Gentile believers, in Romans 1. Every time his starting point... See, Jesus pulls something we can't pull. He says, Nicodemus, I say to you because I'm the authority. I'm the creator. I define reality. We can't do that. We see it in Paul, though. What does Paul do? Every time he starts giving the gospel, he says, I came here to tell you about what? The God who made heaven and earth. What's his starting point? His starting point is not let's appeal to some independent court, some independent judge to get to truth. Truth resides inherently in the Word of God And even though you as an unbeliever are saying, I don't believe it, I reject it, I don't want it, I hate it, I'm suppressing it, the reality is that God made you in His image and deep inside you there is something that admits and knows that God exists. And that's where we're starting. That's where we're starting. You see, we have a message. We have a responsibility. We have a privilege to communicate the gospel to people and to give them answers. But it's not on our backs. It's on the Holy Spirit's back. Our job is to give them the truth because we have the authoritative Word of God. Nothing can shake it. There's never been a fact of history that did not, once it was fully understood, corroborate the Word of God. Nothing has torn it down, ever. We have that. That's our foundation. That's phenomenal. And that gives us confidence to go out and tell people. We're not getting in arguments. It's not an ego trip. It's none of that. Just simply giving people words of life. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we've had to look at your word today to go through some of these somewhat difficult concepts that are so important if we are going to renovate our thinking that we cannot start from empiricism or rationalism. Our starting point must be what you say in your word about every category of human existence. That's our starting point. We have to realize that we live in this world and this world is what it is. Reality is what it is because you have made it that way. And so where we start is with you. 
Father, I pray that you would help us as we think about these things and reflect on them, that, that the Holy Spirit would take these doctrines and just sift them down through our soul as he uses them in that process of soul renovation, mentality renovation. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who does not know Christ as their Savior, we pray that they would take that opportunity right now to tell you that, yes, they do put their faith and trust in Christ alone. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. By the renewing of the Holy Spirit and washing of regeneration. Father, we thank You for this time again. In Christ's precious name, Amen.